If I were writing a letter to a large group of people, let's say our church, and I finished it with this sentence, here's the sentence, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how the Apostle John finishes a letter that he's writing to a large group of Christians. And I read that statement and I thought, how weird to end a letter like this, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And we read that and we think, well, good thing he's not speaking to us because in America, we don't have any idols, and you know, you can kind of go yawn, yawn, you know, it's probably for the people in the first century, and sure enough, the first and second generation of Christians did have to contend with idol worship, and it was just part of the cultural life of the Roman Empire, of many people groups that John may have been writing to, and in the cities that this letter was found in, people would have maybe been going to uh, large temples where there would have been idol worship. Now then, I've been in other countries teaching in pastor's conferences, and I've seen people uh, worshiping idols, and I've seen uh, it in some Buddhist temples. And I have some pictures here for you, and the first one here is uh, my friend Dr. Friesen. He's standing in front of a whole line of, of, um, of Buddhist uh, uh, idols and artwork and so forth. And the next picture is just zoomed in on some of these uh, some of these idols, and they have an idol for each day of the week. And so if you're born on a Monday, you might show up on a Monday and pour water over the Monday idol, and that was supposed to bless your life. And then the next picture, you can see people actually bowing down, and they're praying to an, to, to an idol, to a Buddha. And the idea is that if I pray enough and I do these things, that this idol, this image, will help me to have less suffering in my life because that's the, that's the philosophy of Buddhism. So, so people would be there in that context. And then, and then one time I went to India to teach at a conference and I went to a Hindu temple and this is a picture of kind of a pyramid-like structure on top of a Hindu temple. And each little picture there in this temple represents another god and in, in Hinduism they have upwards of 200 million different gods. They have a god for everything. God of the river and this river, god of the grass, the rain, the, the, just everything. A god of food and they just have all these different gods in Hinduism. And so that was what the the temple that I went into this one day uh, had as well. And then the next picture you can see people pouring water or milk in this case over an idol. And what they would do is they would come to the idol place and they would feed it. You know, and they would worship the idol, and to them, the power of the deity came through the idol to them and would be able to manipulate their situation. So if you needed, you know, your family to be different or to make more money or, or just have something be different in your life, you would go to the, I'm just going to call it the idol station, and you would feed the idol, and you would talk to it and pray to it and, and give it food. And, and in this next one, they're walking around an idol. It looks like a tree, but there are idols there, idols made by human hands. And the more times you circled the idol, in fact, they give you a scorecard. I'll never forget this. And you walk around it. You check off how many times you walked around it. And the more times you walked around the idol, the more power you could have to manipulate your situation as well. And here's another Hindu one that it's, a, it's, a, it's just an image with all these arms and each arm represents a different, a different God in the, Hindu, in the Hindu thinking. And so, but we think of this and, and I've actually been inside the, I think maybe might be the world's largest idol place that anyone has ever been. I mean, it's the world's largest and, and here it is. Yeah, Autzen Stadium. And they, they chant to this god of the duck. 
and they go, go, ducks. I mean, it's just amazing that they're worshiping. And then the announcer will come on. He seems to have power over the weather because he says in Autzen Stadium, it never rains. Yeah, even in America, we can have our own idolatry and we can be worshiping many other things as well. Here's our big idea today. Are you tracking with me? Here it is. Counterfeit gods always disappoint, but the true God satisfies. There are plenty of idols in John's day in the first century. They were in everybody's backyards. I mean, John lived in a city called Ephesus, and in Ephesus they had a temple to Diana and some other large temples, and, and it was just huge statues inside uh, of this temple structure, and they would worship these idols, and, and actually some of, them, some of them had temple prostitution with them, and they would offer... Uh, uh, animal sacrifices to these idols as well. In fact, the idol at the Temple of Diana, it was uh, 420 feet long, 220 feet wide. I mean, it's one of the wonders of the world and it's made of gold. And, and that's what John is probably alluding to. He's saying, hey, don't follow after idols. Keep yourself focused on Jesus because that's where we need to be because these counterfeit gods will just disappoint us. We'll have emptiness in our lives. And the real God, Jesus Christ, satisfies the soul like no one else. And so John is talking about that as well. If you travel to Rome in John's day, they had the pantheon. And in fact, the word pantheon pan means all theon gods. So they had all the gods there. All the Roman gods were represented in the pantheon. And and so the Roman culture, the culture of so many of these first and second generation Christians in the first century, you know, they were surrounded by this idolatry and they could have been tempted to go back to it or could have been influenced by, well, let's just go and hang out at the idol club, you know, and, and so they would get their eyes off of Jesus. And what John is trying to make sure for us as well is that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ because anything that is a substitute for Jesus becomes an idol in our lives. It can be cultural or social or economic. It can be all of these kinds of things. So let's define idolatry here. It's in your notes. And here we go. An idol is anything that keeps you from the true God. It's anything that keeps you from God. In the story of the Bible, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And so during their time of captivity as slaves in Egypt, it seems like they began to forget about the true God of the universe. They forgot about the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Joseph. It had been so many years and they began to probably worship and be influenced by the gods of the Egyptians as well. And so Moses comes onto the scene and Moses is the hero of the story. Well, God is the hero, but Moses is used there and he leads all the people out of captivity, and they um, uh, have this exodus out of the land of Egypt. And they are following after the true God who had done all of these miracles to get them away from Egypt. And they travel with Moses you know, through the parting of the Red Sea, and they go on to get the Ten Commandments. And here's one of the Ten Commandments right off the bat, Exodus 20. God says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them in worship. So it's one of the Ten Commandments. Make sure you make 
make God the center of your life. And you don't have anything that's in place of him. And Moses probably, you know, alluding to God is to don't go back to these Egyptian gods. You know, don't form things out of your own hands. And so Moses gives these Ten Commandments. And then Moses goes back on the mountain to talk with God for a while. And this is what happens. Just about 30 days later, one month later, Exodus 32, he, that would be Aaron, Moses' brother, he's in charge while Moses is gone, took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I listen to that story and I just think about idolatry and think, are you kidding me? They just saw all these miracles, parting the Red Sea, all the things to Pharaoh. God leads them to this mountain. They get the Ten Commandments, and Moses is gone for a little while, and they all fall apart right then. I don't think they thought that the gods that they just fastened was golden calf was, was what parted the Red Sea, but they needed some type of image to conduct the power of a deity, and they just weren't quite getting it. Right, And I think that can happen to us. So in this particular case, you know, Moses had left and God seemed so far away and distant to them. He was up on the mountain. And so that can happen to us as well. God seems distant to you right now. You're listening to me. And I want to tell you something. If God seems distant to you, you might be tempted to go try to satisfy your life in some counterfeit way. And we call that idolatry. When God seems far away, we latch on to things that are counterfeit instead of searching for the true God who can be close to us. Have you ever felt the way maybe the Hebrew people did? Maybe you feel like God is far away and you've tried many different ways to connect with God. You just want to have some comfort in your life. You want to have some, well, some relief from the stress. Many of you right now are listening to me and you've got stress. I've been hearing it. Just when I go around town, I talk to people. The stress of childcare, the stress of their jobs, this everything is upside down. And, and in the midst of it, you think God is far away. And, and, and what can happen is you can find a counterfeit kind of solution. And remember what we said in our big idea, those counterfeit solutions will always disappoint us. But we have our own golden calves, right? Just like the people of Egypt did. We have those things that we can, we can focus on. And the Old Testament, though, compares idolatry, get this, to spiritual adultery. And you say, well, hold it, Steve, spiritual adultery? Yeah, yeah, over and over again in the Old Testament. In fact, I actually read every passage in the Old Testament that had the word idol in it this week. And what happens is that the Hebrew people were supposed to be in a sense, spiritually, as a metaphor, married to God, as a metaphor, committed to God, and then all of a sudden they're committed to this image that they took, took a, uh, a hammer, a chisel, made into an image, and now they're committed to themselves to this image. And God calls this a spiritual adultery or spiritual prostitution. We see this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, and the prophet says, You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And then in verse 20, goes on to say, And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. They were so deviant that they began to sacrifice their children. And then the statement, Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. So he likens 
diverting your spiritual commitment to something else as a spiritual adultery. That's the warning that, that, we, that we see in the scriptures. And as Christ followers, my allegiance, my loyalty is to Jesus who died for me, who was crucified on the cross and he was raised from the dead and he comes to live inside of us. So my first commitment is to Jesus Christ. Now I think if you're taking notes and following along, I think there are two, I'm going to call them spheres of idolatry. And the first one I want to talk about is external. We can have external idols in our lives. You know, uh, you may not have a, a, a carved image of a snake or a reptile. I've seen all kinds of idols in the world that people worship. But maybe your external idol is far different than that. But you do have them. Maybe it's your bank account. And all you do is monitor your bank account or your retirement account. And every day on your smartphone, you're looking to see how the stock market did. And you're calculating in your head where your bank account is and where your retirement is and how much money you have and how much did your house appreciate and all those kinds of things. And what have you done? Maybe you've made an external kind of idol. I had a friend in school. He had a 19, I think it was 73, Ford Grand Torino. It rocked. 351 cubic inch motor. It had a four-barrel Cobra jet carburetor. It was just a fast, cool car. This guy lived for his car. I mean, if he lost his car, it was almost like his life was over. You can tell when something is an idol in your life is that when you lose it, do you fall apart? That might be an indication that, well, your allegiances are not where they should be. Once in a while, I see parents who treat their children as idols. Yeah, they're kind of like trophies. And then they put them in all kinds of sports things, and they're bragging, which is all good and well, but when they become an idol to you, they're everything to you. In fact, what you want to do is you want to see them get all these trophies or scholarships, and you've turned what is God's creation of something good into idolatry as well. I knew a man who... Uh, was trying to sell his house, and his house was not moving. And so what did he do? He took a statue of the Virgin Mary, dug a hole in his backyard, and buried her back there. And he thought that Mary, the Virgin Mary, would be like a good luck charm to sell his house. You know what I call that? Idolatry. That's trying to channel the power of God through some inanimate object made by human hands. That's what a idolatry was in the Old Testament. In fact, many times in the Bible, God says, you've made an idol out of your hands, but can your idol talk? The obvious answer is no. Anything that is more important to you than Jesus is a counterfeit God. And in the end, it will be destruction for you spiritually because you will never be satisfied unless you have the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. An idol has can have such controlling influence over our hearts and our passion and you spend your emotional energy on it and your intellectual energy and your friendship energy and all of those things one of the things that can happen is that we have these external idols and we just keep our eyes focused on them and then when our situation changes when our situation goes south it goes sideways then our whole lives fall apart Another way I think of idolatry is not only external, but internal as well. So we can have idols of the heart. 
and we can have things that we set up inside of us internally and we feel like it's significant. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Ezekiel 14, 3 says, Son of man, that's what he's calling Ezekiel, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Idols in their hearts. Have you ever thought of that before? Because we can think of external idol worship, maybe that we see, or things like uh, our bank accounts, or cars, or houses, and so forth. But what about the idols that we set up on the inside? Only you know they're there. Other people may not see them. But yet, God says you can have these internal idols. And in fact, in the Old Testament, I think there were gods of war, gods of work, gods of sex, gods of food, gods of the rain, and a lot of those kind of gods were like internal things. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 in the New Testament, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Then he has a list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And notice what he says about greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry is in the human heart. Greed starts on the inside and it gets manifested on the outside. We see this again with the prophet Samuel talking about Saul in 1 Samuel 15. He says, For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. What he is saying is that arrogance or pride in the heart is idolatry. All of a sudden, I'm beginning to think that all of us are infected with idolatry because we all have this kind of arrogance or pride or greed. Some authors and, and theologians point out that, that the idolatry that we face often is money, sex, and power. Just money, sex, and power. And we can thirst on those things, and they become idolatrous to us. Here's a key thought, and you just might keep this in mind. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. I don't remember who said that, but I think it was C.S. Lewis. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And often through the story of the Bible, what we see is this, is this ongoing theme of the story that people, instead of serving the true God and having a relationship with God, they begin to, well, set up idols in their lives because you can control and manipulate that. Lots of things in our society are idolatrous. Let me tell you something, racism is a form of idolatry. Yes, racism, because what you begin to say is that my race, my skin color, my situation in life, whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or whatever, you begin to say, I'm better than others. You've set yourself up for a form of idolatry. And it can happen, and it is happening across in our very lives. We can have racial pride that becomes idolatrous. We can have a cultural narrowness to ourselves. And those things cannot coexist with the gospel of grace. Do you understand that? That kind of thinking cannot coexist with the gospel of grace because what we've done is we've puffed ourselves up and we become self-justifying. Theologian Norman Geisler just died last year. One of my former professors, author of 100 books, wrote a book called Man is the Measure. And what he's saying is in secular humanism, it's become idolatrous because the measure of everything we do is ourselves. And therefore, because of that, we justify everything and become self-justifying. We see this with the prophet Jonah as God tells him, Hey, Jonah, 
Why don't you go preach this message of repentance and forgiveness to the people of Assyria in the city of Nineveh? And Jonah goes, no, I don't want to. And he hops on a boat and goes the other way and swallowed by a big fish and eventually goes there and preaches the good news to them and they repent, the Bible says. And Jonah is mad. Why? Because he knows that God is going to forgive them. He knows that, but yet he hates them. He's made his own pride idol around his own country, Israel. See, we can have nationalism as idolatry too. And any type of political philosophy that becomes supreme in your life will become idolatrous. doesn't matter which political party. It can become idolatrous to you. And when we leap onto a philosophy or a political way of thinking and it becomes everything to us and then you lose your election... I mean, half the people are going to be mad no matter what. Let's just face it. Maybe what's happened is you've allowed politics, you've allowed a political philosophy, you've allowed either socialism or, or the invisible hand, as Adam Smith used to wrote in his book, all of those things, maybe that's become idolatrous to you. You've elevated to a place that's supreme in your life. And I can tell you something that happens with that. It's all about power. Who has the power? And when it becomes idolatry, we are trying to manipulate the power. That's why socialism and Marxism, if you've read Marx, Communist Manifesto, actually you should read the whole three volumes. That's where the real meat of what he's talking about. And his atheistic conclusions or bent to that. We need to be very careful what philosophies we actually buy into. Either way, political causes can become idolatrous to you. I want to quote to you an author that I, I read quite a bit of Timothy Keller. He says, when love of one's people becomes absolute, it turns to racism. And then a the very next sentence, he says, when love of equality turns into a supreme thing, it can result in hatred and violence toward anyone who has led a privileged life. We have to be very careful today that we do not substitute a relationship with the living, true God, Jesus, and buy into a counterfeit supremacy of a philosophy. We don't follow a philosophy. We follow a person, and that person is Jesus. Let's get that straight. Let's get that straight. In essence, we can turn political causes into evil counterfeit gods on either way of whatever your leaning is. And idols distort our thinking. It distorts our feelings. Hey, do you remember Ronda Rousey? You remember, do you remember that name? She was the, uh, she, man, fantastic athlete, right? In fact, I think she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She was called the the. Uh, domineering athlete of the year and she was I think the youngest female athlete in the uh, Olympics at 14 at, at that point and then um, she won a gold medal in judo and those things and then she went on to be an MMA fighter and I think she won her first 10 contests in like a minute I mean she was just crushing everybody and then she had that match and she lost miserably. And right after that, she said, I felt so badly, I wanted to kill myself. You know, I think what can happen is we can make things into idols, whether it's our sports, our recreation, our careers. For her, it was our career. And then when that's taken away from us, our identity 
That's the point. Our identity is wrapped up into those things. See, right now, for some of you, your identity is wrapped up into your children or a relationship or your career or the diplomas on your wall. Your identity might be uh, wrapped up in where you serve, where you serve in ministry or something like that. And what happens is that idol factory in our lives takes over and just creates a new idol. That's why we need, number two, if you're taking notes, we need this a strategy to shut down the idol factory. I have a strategy for that. Now, the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 17, it says, While he was waiting for them in Athens, he had visited the city to preach the gospel. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. There's idols everywhere. In fact, they had an idol to an unknown God. They said, we'll just have one over here for uh, just in case. I was reading an article. I read lots of weird stuff. So I was reading an article on archaeology in Egypt. And have you ever noticed how many statues have their noses broken off in Egypt, those sphinx and other things? And it looks like, to me, like, you know, it was just kind of like accident, like the wind and the rain and just a bunch of time, and those things finally, you know, kind of broke off. Well, they discovered this, that it's no accident. And people would make these statues, and then they would, over time, go, well, we don't have any use for that god. And so the idea is we're going to break off their nose, and that God can't breathe anymore, and then that God will die. Now then, I'm not recommending you break off your own nose, but what I am recommending is that you snuff out the idolatry in your life. So let's talk about that. I want to give you four things that can shut down the idol factory, and I hope these will help you. So here's the first one. You need to just identify it. Identify. Some people are addicted to hiking and camping. That's their idol. It's summer in Oregon. There might be a little bit of addiction to hiking and camping and the beach. Okay. Okay, it's all good. I went, well, I can't go hiking right now. I'm a foot operated on, but now you got to get out, right? But has it become an idol? You need to identify that stuff. You know, there's good stuff, but when we confuse it with creation, here's what Paul says in Romans 125. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever, who is forever praised. Sometimes we can worship nature. Whatever the idol is in your life, identify. Maybe your idol is money and greed. Identify that. If you don't identify the problem, you're not aware of it, then you might just continue on with this. And the Bible says that the greedy person is an idolater. So it's a problem, right? Whether you have a large company, you're just getting started, whether you're checking your bank account all the time, you have to ask yourself the question. Only you can decide this. You need to evaluate the own motivations of your heart. I can't do that. Don't come up to me, Steve, do you think I'm a greedy person? I have no idea. Do you know why? Because it's an issue of the heart. I can't see that Jesus can. Jesus can see that clearly if that's your, if that's your thing. I remember a couple years ago, I did fantasy football a couple years in a row. So I'm always checking my fantasy football score. And then I would see guys in church do this. They would open up their phone, and then I finally realized they're not listening to me. They're checking their fantasy football scores. And in fact, I went out into the lobby, and I see a guy watching a football game on one phone, and then on his tablet, he's trying to look at his fantasy score. See, we can let many different things become 
idols to us, our phone. Years ago, I went to a pastor's conference, and I was hanging out with one of my friends at lunchtime, and he began to tell me, another pastor, how uh, stressful his life was and, and how difficult it had become. And then during that, that time at that conference, he began to tell me how much stress he had and anxiety. And then over dinner, he said, you know, one of the things that really helped me a few months ago, he goes, I identified my problem. I said, what was that? And he said, I had allowed ministry to become my idol. I loved ministry. I loved serving people. I loved the church more than I loved Jesus. See, that might be a problem for me. might be a problem for anyone. Do you love serving more than the person you're serving, who is Jesus as well? We have to identify those things. Second thing is to repent. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God. Notice the phrase, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The idea of turning is the idea of repentance, and it means to change your mind, and it also so it means to change your mind, to change your thinking. You have to identify what the problem is, change your mind about that, and then focus your mind back on Jesus. In fact, it's this definite turning that he is talking about. You move away from the idolatrous thinking and turn to Jesus. Here's the third thing that can help you t- shut down this idol-making factory in your heart. And here it is. Replace it. That's right. Replace it. Get to replace that idolatry. How many of you check your phone all the time for emails and text messages? It's just like I have it, right? It's almost as if I'm addicted to my phone and I got to check in on social media. I got to see what's going on. I can't even focus on something else. Maybe you need to replace that with reading your Bible or just something else in your life. You've got to break that addiction to it. I think I've been in that situation before. I'm constantly checking. Maybe i got a message. Maybe I need to look at an email. Finally, I decided it can wait. I don't need to, need to look at every email that comes my way respond right away. I want you to think about this. What disappoints you right now? What's your disappointment? And it might be that what you're disappointed in is what you're idolatrous about. And then you begin to change your mind about it. And then you replace it with something else. Do you see the flow of that? You identify it. You repent of it. And then you replace it with something else. So you take those unbiblical ideas in your head and you replace them with good thinking. That's why the Apostle Paul says to think about things that are noble. Get them on your mind. That's why Paul says we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's our thinking that needs to change. That's where we need to be. One of the things I think is really important right now in our lives, every one of us, is to find a place to connect with people. And it might be connecting with them online in one of our online groups, or maybe you feel comfortable with an in-person group, socially distanced and those things. I hope that you will find that because what will happen is, is that when you're with people who are your, well, spiritual friends, Christ-like followers, and you're making some changes in your life, you have support and encouragement. In fact, good friends will point those things out to you. Hey, 
keep on at it. You're doing great. Or they might point out to you, hey, this might need to change in your life. I have a suggestion for you. Good friends do that. That's why right now in our church, we need people in the month of September as we launch getting people connected that you begin to get that on your radar screen. And in fact, in the last week, we've come up, we have uh, 10 new community group leaders. It's fantastic. We, we've, we're just launching forward in those things. Here's the fourth thing. Rejoice. Okay, once you replace, rejoice. So idolatry means that Jesus isn't enough. So when you begin to rejoice in what Jesus has done, what you're saying is, I have found my satisfaction in Jesus. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus in the Old Testament? Zacchaeus was a, um, a person who was a tax collector. He was super greedy. He'd been basically swindling people. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus sees him in the tree and says, I'm going to go have dinner with you. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And the relationship with Jesus so changes him. He is so thankful and grateful. He rejoices. And he says to Jesus, kind of blurts it out. I kind of wonder if he goes, oh, I can't believe I said that. He goes, I'm going to repay back everybody I stole from. And I'm going to give them back more. That's rejoicing in Jesus. So that's one of the things maybe we need to think about. How can I rejoice in Jesus? Because when we rejoice in him, it means that we are indicating to Jesus Christ that he is enough for us. The Old Testament would say something like this. He is our portion. He is our inheritance. He is everything I need to be satisfied in my life. Let's remember Anything but Jesus is an idol, whether it's a philosophy, a cause, a line of thinking, something internal. And what we really need is to focus on the gospel of grace, which gives us every reason to be fulfilled, satisfied, and joyful. I'm going to pray right now. And as I pray, if God is prompting your heart that you have idols in your life, just tell him. We call that confession and repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're awesome. And as we think about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, we rejoice. Thank you for giving us the gift of eternal life. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. If you're listening to me and God is just prompting you that you have some idle tendencies in your heart, just tell him right now. Whether it's greed or some type of addiction in your life. Whatever you've set up in your life as an idol, sex, food, uh, um, God's outdoors, you turn that into an idol. Whatever it may be, just tell him that, that he has not been first place in your life. Lord Jesus, I pray that our church, Grace Community Fellowship, that we would not be a church that seeks other things, but seeks you supremely and that you infiltrate every person in our community and that you just transform lives because you are the true God. And we pray this in your son's powerful name. Amen.